if we could start uh, settling down again, if I could uh, continue to get your attention as we continue in our worship service. Up to now, we've, uh, we've worshiped God through our uh, songs of praise, through prayer, through our time of community, and now we'll be going into a time of worshiping God as we read His Word together and as we hear from uh, the message. And so to read God's Word for us is Sharon, and afterwards, Pastor Dan will come on up to give his sermon. So Sharon. Today's scripture reading is from Luke 10, verses 38 to 42. Now as they went on their way, Jesus entered a village, and a woman named Martha welcomed him into her house. And she had a sister called Mary, who sat at the Lord's feet and listened to his teaching. But Martha was distracted with much serving, and she went up to him and said, Lord, do you not care that my sister has left me to serve alone? Tell her then to help me. But the Lord answered her, Martha, Martha, you are anxious and troubled about many things, but one thing is necessary. Mary has chosen the good portion, which will not be taken away from her. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning. It's been a while, Grace Trono. Several decades ago, I was 14 years old. I won't tell you how many decades ago, but it was many. I remember vividly being in grade eight with all of the confusion and insecurity of being in grade eight. I remember getting 28 out of 30 in my major biographical essay in our uh, English class. The essay I wrote was about my father and my relationship with him, which was complicated. It was the highest mark in the class, and I was proud of it. I showed it to my dad, hoping to help start a process that would ease the complexity of our relationship. My dad looked at the front of the essay, saw the mark, turned to me, tossed the essay at me, and said half-jokingly, 20 out of 30, huh? What happened to the other two marks? I put my hope of having that conversation into the back pocket of my heart and moved on. I grew up feeling defined by the worth and excellency of my works. I grew up feeling defined by the worth and excellency of my resume my academic resume, my athletic resume, my social resume, and I let that feeling shape me as I went through high school, into college, and adulthood. And so have many, possibly most of us here in this room. If our parents did not instill it into us, our high school or our college experience did. Our work experiences do. Our social media and our culture confirm and reinforce. Because men and women, boys and girls, we swim in cultural waters. And those waters keep saying to us, show me your worth by your work. 
We drink that water, we swim in that water, we see life through the waves and refractions of that water. And when it comes to our relationship with God, that water we swim in, that water we drink, that water we see life through can become poisoned water that distorts, disfigures, and corrupts our souls. About 350 years ago, a Scottish pastor and writer named Henry Scougal wrote a very small book with a very simple thesis, and it is this. The worth and excellency of a soul is to be measured by the object of its love. Scougal was right, and Jesus here proves him right. In this story, Jesus is welcomed into a home by the two women who seem to own and run the house, Mary and Martha. And the nature of their interactions as they welcome Jesus in are windows into our own pathways of welcoming and receiving and hosting Jesus in our own lives. Jesus loved both Mary and Martha, as we will see, but in this case, Mary was right, Martha was wrong, and we all need to hear why. So let's look at these two interactions. Firstly, the paragraph begins with Jesus' interactions with Martha. We see here the confusion of being Martha. The first scene opens with her welcoming Jesus into her home. Immediately, the writer is telling the reader, this is a woman to be commended. In that culture, in that day, hospitality was a cardinal virtue and considered a window into the soul and character of the person who owned the home. Martha, therefore, is shown as someone who loves Jesus. And in light of the context of a person reading the book of Luke, just about a chapter before, Jesus had said, go into homes and see who receives you. That will be a barometer of how they receive me. So we know immediately in the context of Luke's gospel and the culture of that day that she's being commended. Not only does she receive Jesus, though, she receives all his disciples and followers who are with him at the time. <laughs> that's a, probably a lot of people. That's a lot of food. That's a lot of care. That's a lot of work. That's a lot of money. She is shown with the intensity of her commitment to Jesus. Finally, it says she serves them. She's so busy serving them, in fact, that she feels overwhelmed. Jesus here is meeting someone whom the author, Luke, is commending to us. Because we know there's an intimate connection in the gospel writings between following him and serving others. Jesus is called in the Gospels God's chosen servant, the suffering servant of the prophets, the beloved servant whom God delights in at his baptism. And Jesus will say to his disciples, let me be clear, Mark 10, 45, for even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. It's the essence of Jesus to serve and in the essence of his life of service is his act of service by giving his life up at the cross. 
When Jesus hung on a cross, bloody and beaten, to die a lingering death of asphyxiation while his body suffered the pain of being nailed to wood, his supreme act of service was to pay your and my debt of sin. In Romans 5, Paul puts it this way, verse 8, God shows his own love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Jesus' love was ultimately revealed by what he did. So the act of serving us was his ultimate proof of love. Serving God and others is loving God and commendable. You need to see that here. Everywhere in the New Testament, that is reflected. I'll give you one verse, 1 Peter 4.10. As each of us has received a gift from God, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's very grace. Men and women, teens, boys and girls, like Martha's work, your work for God is not wrong. It is commendable. But that is not the issue here. It's not her work, but the fact that she's putting her worth into her work that signifies what is wrong with Martha. Because look what happens next. Martha, it says, gets distracted with much serving. (laughs) She goes up to Jesus and says, Lord, do you not care that my sister has left me to serve alone? She's gone from caring to complaining, and then she goes from complaining to commanding God. (laughs) She says, tell her to help me. You see, the main issues are coming to the surface. She was distracted with much service. The Greek word there for distracted means to be so overwhelmed with the size of the task that you get derailed. And her words to Jesus are words of derailed frustration. Tell her to help me. Welcome to the complexity of being a Christian, the complexity of Martha. She is commendable and yet corrupted, kind of like you and me. So let's probe a little bit of the complexity that's in here so we can see insights for ourselves. Firstly, this idea of being distracted or derailed, it is, I think, epidemic in the Christian world. Martha is doing something profound and good. She's hosting Jesus, but the work of hosting Jesus and working for him is exhausting because the work is limitless. If you are a Christian, at some point you have felt this way. I have felt this way almost every day of being in Christian ministry, now more than 30 years. The opportunities to serve are endless. The needs of our city, both spiritual, material, economic, political, social, they're endless. You hardly feel like you make a dent. And I remember in the very early days of Grace Toronto, when we were renovating the house we had just bought, I was feeling exactly this way. I had a friend come to help with the renovations. He came from Guelph, and we took a break, and I was starting to tell him all of our plans and all of the needs, and he stopped me. He says, Dan, I hear everything you're saying, but I got to tell you something. Are you ready for it? I said, uh, yep. He said, you're trying to boil the ocean. I looked at him, and he was right. 
I was trying to boil the ocean. I was trying to remedy all of the social, economic, material, spiritual needs of Toronto at one time. You see, the scope of work rather than the worth of Jesus had become my focus. I had lost my joy. That's what happens when you focus on the work and make the work the identity marker of your worth. You get exhausted and distracted. But secondly, there's this other reaction. She's frustrated. So frustrated she complains to God and then tells him what to do. (laughs) How does she get there? What's causing this in her? Well, we see from the text that she has begun to compare herself. Compare herself with Mary based on the work that she sees them doing, based on the resume. She sees herself at that moment at least wiser, probably more loving, more committed, more others-focused than Mary. Mary's just sitting at Jesus' feet, hanging out with Jesus, with the rest of his disciples. You see, Martha has subtly shifted the focus of her work from serving Jesus to serving someone else. Who? Her. Who is she doing this for? Whose worth, whose honor, whose concerns are starting to come to the fore here? Hers. It's become about her. Men and women, this is so easy for you and I to fall into. The shift is subtle. We start out by doing good things for God, filled with zeal and motivation for Him, and we end up wanting a little share of that glory, a little recognition for all that work. We end up comparing ourselves to others, just like we do at school, just like we do at work. Now we do it in the community of faith, in the service of God, and the comparison bothers us. Ever felt that way? I guarantee you felt that way, because you're human, and that is our inclination. Implications. Firstly, if you are not yet a Christian, you need to realize that you are swimming in a culture that tells you to show me your work and I will tell you your worth. Our culture relentlessly moves in that direction. And so when it comes to you now trying to explore a relationship with God, you have that lens. So I want you to ask yourself these two questions. Do you judge this Jesus in Christianity by what you're seeing in his people? Like Martha, are you beginning to evaluate God by how some people are not up to your standards? There's something valid about that, I grant you, but there's also something lazy about that, and I need to tell you about this. If you look at the faults of any religion or any set of teaching based on some follower who's a bit of a jerk, that's the easy way to dismiss that point of view. I'm sure if I got Karl Marx in this room right now, he'd be pretty upset with all the people in the world who've dismissed his teachings by looking at Joseph Stalin, one of his chief quote-unquote disciples. I'm sure if I had Frederick Nietzsche in the room here, he would be pretty upset by how many millions of people have refused to entertain his teachings because one of the chief followers of his teachings in the early 20th century was Adolf Hitler. I'm sure if, 
If I found a conservative leader in this room, they'd be pretty upset by the people that have dismissed conservatism by Donald Trump. Or a liberal senior party leader who'd be pretty upset if you dismissed the liberal party by that junket to India that Justin Trudeau took and all those weird suits that he got made for him for all of his photo ops. That's the lazy way to compare yourself to some unsavory person and then dismiss that whole set. Secondly, if you're not a Christian, do you think about God and relating to Him as a question of your moral and spiritual resume? Your culture tells you to do that, but I need to tell you the God you're approaching doesn't work like that because He's not the God of TikTok and He's not the God of Instagram. This is the holy, sovereign God who made the universe with a word and who is infinitely pure, infinitely holy. You cannot replace him. You cannot win against him. You cannot fool him. He sees everything you've done, both the good and the dark and the selfish and the broken things that you hide from everybody. You cannot hide from him. He knows all. He knows the times when you've longed for recognition, that you've quietly thrown people under the bus. His purity judges all your selfishness, your envy, your pride, your ego. You cannot earn his pleasure or his approval by your resume because he will show you his standards and they are perfection. Be holy as I am holy. He sees your ugly underside, the underside that Martha is leaking out now. You can't work your way into his good graces because that's arrogant of you. In Romans 3, you need to hear God's pronouncement about the validity of our resumes to please Him. Romans 3, verse 10, there is none righteous, no, not one. There's no one who understands. There is no one who seeks for God. Put away the resume. If you're a Christian here, I'm going to ask you to ask yourself those same two questions, slightly tuned to where you are. Firstly, are you like Martha, overwhelmed and disappointed by other Christians so much that it frustrates you? Then you're comparing. Are you frustrated with God because your own attempts at serving Him seem to be going sideways? You're not getting the recognition. You're getting overly criticized. Welcome to my brain for the last year, the battle I have, falling into comparison and seeing yourself as not being treated properly. That's Marthaism. Second question, are you feeling so fatigued and overwhelmed by the amount of work that needs to be done in the Christian life that you look at God and you feel like a failure? I believe I fell into this myself. When Grace was growing just before COVID broke out, it was growing quite quickly, and I got into this headspace that I needed to be some kind of spiritual superman. I wanted to make 20 out of 30 top mark in the class as a preacher, as a Bible teacher, as a spiritual shepherd, as a counselor, as an everything. I wanted to be the highest mark in the class everywhere. So I became in a hurry. I was in a hurry to encourage people and appreciate them. So instead of taking the time and spending the time with them, 
I would intensely pour words of encouragement or physical touch of encouragement to them to try and give them the intensity of love and encouragement that I felt they deserved and needed, but not in the time that they deserved to give that amount. And I made people feel uncomfortable, and I made people feel I was being inappropriate. And I'm sorry. And I'm grieved by this. I drank the culture's water of being defined by my resume. I drank my father's water of always looking to see what happened to the remaining two marks. I drank Martha's water of comparing myself with others who seemed less busy and therefore less committed. Men and women, this is not living water. This is dead water, deadly water, poisoned water, the water of self, self self-actualization, self-promotion, self-protection. It leads to a treadmill of performance and comparison. It leads to spiritual death. Look at his response to Martha. He says to her, as he said to me, and he says to us, Martha, Martha, you are worried and upset about so many things. Now, notice what he doesn't do, men and women. He doesn't just accept her attitude. She's trying her best. Let's go soft on her. He doesn't accept her excuses. And he doesn't accept ours. He doesn't think that your work for him gives you a pass to compare yourself with others. He doesn't think that your work for him gives you a pass to complain to him and to command him to do things that are not right. What does he do? He says to Martha, as he said to me, and as he's saying to many of us, you're crossing a line. You have become derailed. You've begun to judge others based on your view of yourself. You've, become, you've begun to complain to God and tell him what to do. You're not working for God. You're asking God to work for you. There's the complexity of working for God, the complexity of Martha. Do good works for God. He commends them. They are beauty to him. Don't do good works for you. They are beastly to him. And the beauty of your work can become the beast of your own self-validating hunger for recognition, and you don't even know you've crossed the line. Now, for all of those who now have been kind of wearied and worn down by the first half of this talk, (laughs) by the treadmills of Marthaism, and if you're tired and thirsty and longing for refreshment, there is living water in this passage. We find hope, healing, and health in the words of Jesus about the clarity of Martha. So let's look at our second point, the clarity of Martha as Jesus shows us. Jesus says this to Martha about Mary. Martha, one thing is necessary. Mary has chosen the good portion, and it will not be taken away from her. Do you hear him? Let's probe into these key words here. One thing is necessary. The Greek word here for necessary means something that is lacking in the situation but is needed in that situation. There's one thing he says is necessary by implication in all that Martha is doing, she's missing the one thing. 
Lest Martha have any doubt about who has the one thing and what it is, he says, look at Mary. She's chosen the good portion. What is that good portion? Since building a resume ain't it, what is it? What is Mary doing? That's so clearly what Jesus wants us to do. Note she did not do nothing. She did something. What did she do? She came to Jesus and she sat at his feet like a disciple sits at the feet of their rabbi in that day and said, teacher, I submit to your teaching. I need it. I want it. Let me, by your grace, sit close enough to you to receive it. She came in humility to enjoy communion with God himself. This is what she did. She took the posture of a disciple, a learner. She compared herself to nobody, but just wanted to be face to face with Jesus. She counts it a privilege just to spend time with him. Communion with Jesus, not working for Jesus, is her heart's desire and goal. She didn't expect favor from God because of what she did. She relied on favor from God to be able to sit there. She came by faith, trusting in his grace that she might find his favor to sit at his feet and embed his word into her heart. In theological terms, she came to Jesus by faith through his grace, independence, not based on her resume, in theological terms, not based on her works. Here, men and women, is the clarity of what it means to host Jesus in your life and heart. Paul wrote in Romans 3 that there's none righteous, not even one, but later on in Romans 3, he said this, now the righteousness of God has been revealed apart from his law. Though the Old Testament, the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction. For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God and are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. We come, all of us, wherever we are in our spiritual life journey, from the most committed Christian to the least knowledgeable skeptic, we come, all of us, all the time, no matter where we are spiritually, we come to Jesus only one way the one necessary way, by faith, independence, allowing His grace to accept us with no merit of our own, no worth of our own that qualify us, and by His grace, He graciously receives us, seeing our dependence, our humility, and our faith. That is what Mary was doing. She sat at his feet. That may sound demeaning to you that she sat at the feet, a woman at the feet of a man, but in that culture, a student being allowed to sit that close to the rabbi is the greatest favor that could be given and the most exalted status. That's what she did. And when you come to Jesus like that, what do you receive? 
Whom do you meet? Who is Jesus? You meet, the creator, you meet the creator of the cosmos who made the world in all of its beauty, who by his word commanded the hosts of heaven into being, who has come down in humble form and sits there and looks at you and deigns to eat with you. But in eating with you, in accepting your food, he feeds you his eternal word and truth. You meet the one who's so willing to come to you that he comes to you and then goes to the cross for you, owning the guilt of your sin on your behalf and paying its debt before Almighty God. That's the Jesus you will meet with love shining in his eyes, his eyes shining with forgiveness, with the knowledge of the deepest, darkest sin that you hold and you hunger for, he meets you and in his eyes are forgiveness and grace. You commune with the wisest being of the cosmos who created it. You hear the wisdom that formed the world tell you the meaning of life and the beauty of you that he sees because he's willing to die for you. That's how much he loves you. You gaze into the glory of God himself and you watch him take your hand, cleanse your soul, free your heart from all guilt and anxiety and suddenly you see him eating with you. Your heart soars when you meet him because you see love without borders. You see grace without limits. You see joy inexpressible, unstoppable, unlimited, given out, out of his eyes for you to drink in for all eternity. That's what happens. Your desire for beauty finally finds the beauty it has been searching for all of its life, and it rests and feeds and drinks it in and is invited to drink it in for eternity. There are no treadmills or resumes at that moment of soaring, thrilling, soul-filling beauty and love and joy. There is only the presence of the glory of God and the gratitude that you get to drink it in. There's no room for a treadmill. There's no room for you because his glory is taking everything up and you're so glad it ain't about you. I have a mother who may be watching on live stream right now. Hi, mom. Everyone who knows my mom loves my mom, not just my family, all of her neighbors, and all of mine. We get my mom to visit as much as we can get her to come. She doesn't like coming. She thinks she's a burden. What she doesn't know, mom, giving you a secret now, what she doesn't know is that people love her when they come to visit us more than they love seeing me. They like seeing me but they love when my mom's there when they come to visit. So we have neighbors and friends and people over all the time when my mom comes because it enhances their visit. When my mom, it makes their visit with us more delightful by her presence. Men and women, when you host Jesus in your heart the way Mary does and people come to visit you, and they see Jesus with you. Sorry, Mom, you're not Jesus. Be, let's be clear about that. But when they see Jesus in you, they see what their heart has been hungering for all of this time. 
when people come into my office as a pastor, I'm so tempted to show them the pastor who's working hard for Jesus. And I am so not helping people because they didn't come to hear about my resume for Jesus. They came to meet Jesus. And when they come to see you, that's what they love. When I'm hosting him well, they see a little bit of Jesus in me, and he meets them. When I spend time with Jesus and experience his love and meditate upon his glory, a little more of Jesus gets hosted in me for others to see. And in his presence, his glory fills the space and gives me the freedom to admit, I come by grace. I have nothing to give you except my sin here take my sin and he takes it and then he envelops me in his love and his glory and I'm transformed by that freedom. The gospel says it will transform all of us. Listen to what 2 Corinthians 3.18 says. It says, we all with unveiled faces are beholding, beholding the glory of the Lord, excuse me, beholding the glory of the Lord are being transformed into the same image, his image, from one degree of glory to another. From this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. Do you hear that? Beholding is becoming. Hosting is being transformed into the likeness of. We end now with a promise. The final promise Jesus makes to Martha. He says, Mary has chosen the good portion, and it will never be taken away from her. The word taken away means to cause to cease to exist. It has two possible meanings that can go either way in the text. One is it will never be taken away, it's eternal. The other is it cannot be taken away even by external coercion. I personally think that both shades of meaning are in view here by Jesus. So I'm gonna look at both. Firstly, not taken away by hostile coercion. Men and women, I think we need to understand that we're living in an age that has become increasingly hostile to religious faith in general and Christianity in particular. Mm. Christianity, surely. Maybe not in particular, but surely we have seen it. My own observation is that a lot of people who grew up as Christians are presently in their late teen and early adult years beginning to leave the Christian faith. The Korean Christian church insightfully called this the silent exodus more than a decade ago. Here's what I see happening. The churches that most Christians, and most of us here are Christians, the churches, churches that most of us grew up in emphasize doing work for Jesus. Martha-like devotion. As the primary marker for our identity in Christ, and it created Martha-ism in us. People being discipled that way became good at working for God, but we also became good at comparing and contrasting ourselves with others, criticizing the church, constantly finding fault, and being able to see the downside and the good side in everything about our church, from its Sunday morning to its Wednesday nights to its everything in between. We became comparers and critics. Martha-ism slipped in. It was the way we understood being a follower of Jesus. But deep communion with God through Jesus and gazing and meditating upon him, that was underdeveloped 
as we grow up in our Christian faith. And so, as a result, when people become seniors in high school or leave for university or become young professionals, they drink the cultural water more deeply of intense criticism of the church, and they begin to internalize it. So then if they hit roadblocks in their Christian faith and challenges and in their faith communities, they see the brokenness in their own lives, but they see more specifically the brokenness in the church, but they see it with more cynicism, more criticism, more comparison. Not a lens of communion with God and grace, but a lens of comparison and contrast and self-righteous criticism, they look and their own alienation grows, and they wander from God, and they blame it on the church. In contrast, what I have seen is that those who deeply communed with God for years, who daily sought His face, who allowed His Word and His grace to be the lens that shaped them rather than the worth of their work, and their identity is built on Him and His Word, and they've embedded His grace into their lives. They see themselves, their world, their church through the lens of the gospel and grace and their own brokenness. They did not wander. They may have wavered, but they did not wander because Jesus was too beautiful to give away. Do you want to be able to withstand this culture and have your kids withstand this culture? The only way to do that is to make Jesus beautiful, more beautiful than what this world, this culture, this age can give them. Secondly, it will be never taken away, the the, the sense that it will last eternally. I need to ask you something. When you die, What value will your resume have upon your death? None. Your resume will dissolve in its importance and like the wind will just blow it away. Your work is done. Your resume is irrelevant, but your communion with God, if you are a Christian, is just beginning. What Mary is starting here, sitting at Jesus' feet, is the beginning and the foretaste of what your eternal joy will be. The object of your love will be the center of your life forever. Two applications as we close. Firstly, lay your resume aside when it comes to your walk with God. There's an old hymn. It used to be called Nothing Great or Small. I think it's now called It Is Finished. It is old. We don't sing it. But these words we should embed in our hearts. Weary, working, burdened one, wherefore toil you so? Cease your doing. All was done long, long ago. Cast your deadly doing down, down at Jesus' feet. Stand in Him, in Him alone, gloriously complete. You hear that? That tells us what our second application should be. 
Stand in him, in him alone. Commune with Jesus. Take the time now to build the rhythms of communion with Jesus into your soul. If you don't spend time in the word and prayer every day, start doing it and stop making excuses for it. If you're saying to me you're too busy for it, you have just diagnosed yourself as a Marthaist, being defined by your work instead of your communion. Take the time. If you're already doing that, take the next step. Start reading great books about the glory of Jesus. If you need any of those books, I have a ton of them. The Glory of Christ by John Owen, Gentle and Lowly by Dane Ortland, Knowing Christ by Mark Jones, three of the best books written in the last 40 years in the English language. Well, Communion with God was written in the 1500s or 1600s, so maybe a little longer. Commune with Him. Make it a habit in word and prayer daily. Take the next step if you're already doing that. Read these books. Take the next step if you're already doing, reading those books. Memorize, embed, do what Mary did. She sat at his feet and students memorized what their teachers had taught them. That's why we are able to have such accurate understandings of what Jesus taught because those people memorized it. Make your small groups one where you commune with Jesus Too many small groups that I've been in my Christian life are the pooling of people's emotional reactions to a Bible verse. Mary invites you to do the necessary thing, to sit under his teaching and let it shape you. May your small groups, your discipleship, your conversations be those. Henry Skugel said, the worth and excellency of a soul is to be measured by the object of its love. I want to ask you, whom does God the Father love? Who is the primary object of his love? Jesus. Who does the Father invite us to make the primary object of our love? Jesus. Who showed us the worth of his love by the work of his death and resurrection for us. Jesus, what is the one necessary thing that Jesus says Mary is doing? Making Jesus the object of her love and affection. Sit at his feet. Gaze at his glory. Embed his teachings into your heart, and you will know joy. Let us pray. Father, I thank you and praise you for your goodness and your grace. Help us now as followers of you, as ill-deserving sinners, as broken people to come to you with joy, humility, dependence, and faith. Fill us with your glory. Transform us with your love. Help us to host you and show you to the world that the world may see how beautiful you are, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.